following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. This week we are kind of in one of those in-between times, and um, I'm just realizing I left my glass of water outside on the, the table. Would you grab that for me? Thanks, Jamie. Um, we have a holiday weekend, and some folks are getting that last chance to travel in, and School starting this week. Everything's kind of ramping back up. We have a new series kicking off next week, which is going to uh, introduce our thematic thread for this ministry year called Beloved Community. And uh, we thought it would be fun today to do something that we do maybe three or four times a year, which we like to call Stump the Pastor. Um, and I always joke, it's not, it's not very difficult. What's that? So... The way this works is that you get to ask questions and I get to offer a response and uh, you get to be unsatisfied. Because <laughs> 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 my answers are not usually what you want. But, um, no, I love doing this. It's kind of a good way to get an in, uh, interactive experience and kind of check the pulse of where you are. So I, as I said a minute ago, we do have uh, younger kids in the sanctuary with us as, uh, than usual. I want to remind you, we do have these busy bags, which Colleen made for us before she um, went away to Pittsburgh. Um, So these are for you if you want them. They're in a bin at the back of the sanctuary, or you can come up and get this one if you're feeling especially brave. The only thing I would ask is that when you're done with your busy bag, kids, can you fill it back up and put it back in the bin so that the kids in the 11 o'clock service can have one too? And um, grown-ups, if you want a busy bag, you have to make sure that all the kids who wanted one got one first. So... Um, so before we dive into the first question, uh, since I'm not preaching a sermon from the Bible today, I want us to be exposed to the words of Scripture because uh, I could, you know, I, I can and maybe will say things that are heretical and wrong and false, but we'll, we'll get the, um, the inspired Word of God into your ears first, okay? <laughs> and then we may be able to read a text at the end as well. But I thought some of the lectionary passages today were very powerful. They're almost sermonic in their own right. So this is from the book of James. This is James 1, 17 through 27. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth, so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, for your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, Their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So, 
That's uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's from the book of James. So I have this uh, wireless handheld microphone, which I'm going to uh, ask. Um, Dan, you're always the MC, but uh, you're, you're always in the front row. So. so I think I see Alicia's hand over there. Maybe we could start with her question. By the way, if you uh, have a question that you would not like to be included in the podcast, just say that beforehand, or you could even tell me afterward, and we'll, we'll edit it cleverly, and it will never exist, except in this room. I have a wonderful son who's 26, and I think I've told you that he's God's child. He just doesn't know it yet. Mm. I have wonderful friends who are Buddhists, and my question is, I believe in a God of second chances as long as you talk to God and say, I I need a second chance, Mm. but we're... Where does that all fit in our faith? I mean, I know to turn that over to God and let God try and talk to my son. Mm-hmm. Um, but it worries me because I want him to be included too. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that heartfelt question. Um, <clears throat> well... <laughs> You answered your own question in some ways. You know that, right? You, you, you said, I know that I should. And I think in, those, in the times when you said those kind of phrases, I think you were pretty close to how I would answer. Um, the number one thing that I say to people, especially parents who have children who are not um, uh, following Jesus or who are, you know, to use the parlance of the church I grew up in, who are not walking with the Lord or whatever language we might use. And I think part of the problem, honestly, Alicia, is that we have... We have some uh, language baggage, (laughs) Um, a lot of us who grew up in church. But the number one piece of advice I have for parents in those situations um, is, can you entrust your children into the hands of a loving God? And um, that's very, very open-ended. It's not a specific reassurance. It's not a specific condemnation. But it is, uh, I think it's consistent with the, the broad and big messages of scripture to trust God and to trust God with our beloved family members and friends. And I've come to a place where I I try to um, hold internally and practice externally a little bit of um, theological humility, which is to say I, I don't know. The truth is none of us exactly know. We don't get a lot of uh, return visits, you know, from people who can tell us exactly what happened. Um, and so there's always going to be that, that piece of honest fear, I think, for, for us. But um, <clears throat> I also believe in a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth and thousandth chances. And um, I'm really uh, inspired by how certain people have tackled this question in literature so C.S. Lewis's the book, The Great Divorce, would be a really excellent read for people who are wondering about, you know, what happens when you say no to God over and over and over again. Is there a moment when, that's, when you're finally cut off or do you get infinite chances or whatever? And he uses this really beautiful allegory, which I won't go into right now, but I, I would commend that to you or to anybody else who has a similar type of question. See what I mean about being unsatisfied? <laughs> uh, next question. I'm actually going to take MC prerogative real quick because it's related. Um, I wonder how you can respond to, how did we get from the Old Testament Genesis idea of the fall 
to a modern understanding of the fundamental depravity of all humanity. Where we also have a God that talks about how wonderful and we're made in his image and there's, yeah. there's a kind of a conflict there that I don't understand, but I think it's related. You know. I think so too, Dan. Um, that's a great question. That's some pretty deep in the weeds theology, but I like that. We're okay with that. Okay, so the, the idea of a fall... Um, and the idea of what, what some people call original sin, right? Born into depravity, yeah. Um, we're not, in those senses, first of all, uh, Jews don't talk about the fall that, that way. The, the, the Eden story and the, the temptation of Adam and Eve, it's, it's not where Jewish believers go with that story. That, now, that's not to say we have to follow them wherever they go. Obviously, we have some very significant differences of opinion about things, but... Um, I think it's interesting. The, the original owners of that story don't interpret it that way. Um, and Eastern and Western Christians don't interpret it the same way. Right? So Western Christians, which is what we're part of, comes through uh, the Protestant Reformation, Luther, all the way back through um, uh, Augustine primarily in the West, have this sense of the fall being this instant, complete, binary switch from perfection to total depravity. Right? Whereas Eastern Christians don't see it that way at all. They see it as a, as a child um, you know, disobeying their parent and, and finding that there's consequences built into that, sort of like touching a hot stove when you're told not to. Um, you know, and, and how many of you would put a child in timeout or spank them or whatever if, they, if you told them not to touch the hot stove and they did and they burned their hands? Do they need more punishment at that point? No. I mean, that, right? So um, the fall is an interesting one. Uh, original sin is, is, wasn't wasn't really like the prevailing thing in the early church um, and didn't become the prevailing thing until much later. I want, to, I want to say probably even Aquinas, like 13th century, right? And so, um, you know, for what it's worth, I don't really subscribe to that doctrine in that way either. Um, so, <laughs> your question is, how do we get from that picture, which you assume to be there, um, I think because a lot of us have been told that it is there, into a more loving place. And I, I actually, I think the lines are way blurrier than that. And um, I don't know if that's helpful or, or makes it worse. But <laughs> I might say something like that a few times this morning. <laughs> I'll try to give you resources to read if I'm, if I'm going down that road too far at some point. But it seems like our theme might be salvation. Mm-hmm. I was recently reading something that made me think about this big nerdy word, dispensationalism. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, this is kind of a multi-part question. Um, maybe you want to give us a little brief summary of what that is. Um, very briefly, I had always understood it as um, the way God related to mankind throughout time. Uh, what I just read said how... Uh, was explaining it, this person explaining it did not believe in it. And she said she was taught that it was how God saved humans throughout time. Hmm. So that got me thinking about uh, are we influenced by dispensationalism even if we don't think we believe in it because we tend as Christians to think you can only be saved one way. Mm-hmm. And is there a counter-argument that would suggest that God has demonstrated many ways to be saved throughout Scripture, that someone who wants to find more ways (laughs) to include as many people as I can might 
be able to look into. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. What a great question. <laughs> um, the, that question was way more interesting and enlightening than anything I can say in response, just to be clear from the beginning. But, so briefly, dispensationalism, as I understand it, is that there are these uh, seasons or times or, or, or you know, periods where God dispenses um, whatever it might be, salvation or um, revelation, in, in different ways. So there's the Old Testament dispensation, right? And then there's the, maybe you could chunk that up. I'm actually not sure how specific they get with it. That's not really my cup of tea either, as you probably would guess. But uh, there's the dispensation of the early church when the Holy Spirit was really poured out and there was the gift of tongues and healing and all that stuff. And, and people who don't go, go for that anymore, you know, say, well, that dispensation has passed. That's not how the Spirit works in our midst anymore, so we shouldn't expect that kind of thing, and if you, do, if you see it, it's necessary, it's, you know, it's obviously phony or whatever. Um, so that's my brief understanding of dispensationalism, and um, I think, as with a lot of things that, that, in my opinion, go astray, there's a kernel of important truth to be found there, and for me, the kernel of truth there is that, yes, we have, I'll use the word evolved, in, in the way we understand God. Right? And you can actually see that right in the pages of Scripture, something I've talked about from time to time here, that uh, people, God's people understood God in one way in this book of the Bible, and they understood God in another way in this book of the Bible. And I'll even go one further. Sometimes those two different chapters and different books of the Bible are describing the same event in different ways. And you say, okay, this one was, we can date it here, and this one we date three centuries later. Something changed in the way they understand how the world works and who God is in that time. Um, and I think it's normal and to be expected that we see this unfolding of how we understand God through, through Scripture as it, as it comes out. Because it's, it's, it's not a singular thing, right? It's a, it's a, it's a library, not a book. It's all across time and different cultures and things. So, I think, it's, uh, I think we ought to expect to see God's people changing the way they experience God and understand salvation, to get to the other part of your, your question. And of course, we see, uh, in, as Christians, in the incarnation and life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus, the most perfect revelation of God's character and nature, um, surpassing everything else that had come before it, including all the writings of Scripture, even the ones that pointed to him, <laughs> um, and... I would say even the ones that were written about him, which um, can get confusing, but, but that's, that's where I would be with that. Um, and it, as, as pertains to different ways of being saved, I, the language of salvation is really challenging because we, um, you and I, I know, come from similar streams of, of Protestant Christianity that has understood salvation to be only about the fate of our eternal souls. It's, uh, what do we call it, like afterlife insurance. <laughs> and I believe that a, a biblical understanding of salvation is much broader than that. It includes all kinds of things like actual saving of actual lives and uh, restoring of people who are, have been harmed or who have been enslaved and those, that kind of salvation, like um, I think Jesus is our savior in all those other ways, not just in this afterlife way. And um, now I'm rambling so much that I'm not even sure I'm, how far I've gotten away from your question, but is any of that helpful at all? I, I, <laughs> you're giving a very polite nod right now. 
I would love to talk more with you about that, or with anybody, actually. We could have a, a dispensationalism coffee <laughs> hour. <laughs> wow, what, a, what an intriguing question. Okay, doesn't anybody want to ask me, like, when the book of James was written or something? <laughs> Susan. I don't know if this will be any easier, um, but it's more personal. And that is, um, we live in a very um, capitalist society, and personally my views have shifted to be a lot more socialist. I'm sorry, can you, I heard capitalist society and then I didn't... And my views, that. and my personal views uh, about morality have shifted to be more socialist, and when you talk about salvation and restoration, um, that being an individual responsibility, even if that's not what I see reflected in the world around me. But I find it very difficult to figure out the line of, of giving um, personal economy. Um, Jesus said it's easier, for, it's, it's easier for a camel than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, but nobody thinks they're rich. They think someone else is rich. Mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out um, at what point I care for my needs and, and, and my immediate responsibilities, but also fulfill this calling to be my brother's keeper, sometimes when that's my immediate family, um, and how to have a consistent worldview and, and use um, a Christian worldview to answer those questions. Uh, obviously, it's going to be different for each person, but just where to start. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, you started your question with capitalism and socialism, which is an interesting topic, and you know, which one would be more closely aligned with the worldview we see revealed in Scripture would be uh, something we could spend some time talking about. Um, I, I think because American Christianity is American first and Christianity second very often, that, that uh, sometimes that question, we, we presuppose an answer <laughs> That's probably not there in the Bible um, or in the teachings of Jesus. But that's, it doesn't sound to me like that's really where the heart of your question is. And I will address the, the other stuff, uh, which is like, how do you personally have a, a, a consistent worldview and an ethic that, um, that balances the need to care for yourself against the, balance, uh, the call to care for others? Right? So I'm going to leave aside for a moment, if you will give me permission, the question of what Christians should do to try to implement their worldview in the government so that it's expressed out. You know, <laughs> that's a pretty big can of worms. Um, well, I start with, with Jesus' teaching um, that says, I'm going to paraphrase here, don't worry about what you'll eat or what you wear or where you'll live. You know, everybody, everybody worries about those things, but look at the lilies of the field and how beautifully they're clothed. Look at the birds of the sky who are, always have enough to eat and God cares for them. And how much more important are you, beloved child, to God than the grass or the birds? And so don't worry about those things. And he's, he, it, it's, it's not just don't worry, right? Because the, honestly, the, the instruction don't worry comes across very uh, painful to many people, especially people who experience uh, anxiety on a clinical level. And so I, I don't want to throw the don't worry at you but what he says afterwards that is first seek the kingdom of God and then those things will be added afterwards. So then, then we spend our whole lives trying to figure out what it means to seek the kingdom of God. And um, I think you're right. Each of us will have a slightly different answer to that question. But part of the beauty of being in community with each other is that we get to try to live that out together. 
And I hope that ours is a place where we are together seeking the kingdom of God and trusting that the other things will come to us later. Um, but I don't, know, I don't know about you, but this, this ebbs and flows for me. Some days it's like, praise Jesus, I am trusting. <laughs> and other days it's like, uh, it's the end of the month and I don't know where the groceries are coming from. <laughs> right? Uh, and that's just, just the way of life, I think. So that's a great question. Um, I feel like I'm like 0 for 6 right now, but other questions? We have time for a few more. Mike has one up at the front here. <laughs> the funny thing is I don't actually know when the book of James was written. <laughs> actually, I was pretty sure you didn't know. Uh, um, you were just mentioning um, hopefully Artisan is providing a space where. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Earlier, in, uh, we opened service by singing, When I Look Into the Face of My Enemy, I See My Brother. Hmm. And I'm curious, um, um, not so much in an evaluative way of how we are doing, but how does one provide an inclusive space for, um, for the persecuted and the persecutor hmm. at the same time? Yeah, how to and and I mean that both locally, but then also thinking about Pope Francis in Ireland, mm. and how does how does the church provide a place for the abused and the abuser? Yeah, wow, that is an incredibly difficult question to answer and problem to solve. Uh, um, we are actually in. I'm going to be somewhat coy in the words that I use here, um, but we're in the midst right now of, of putting together a policy on um, the types of misconduct that you're alluding to there at Artisan um, because the, and it's not just the Catholic Church. The, this is a, it's not just the church. It's, it's Hollywood. It's politics. It's, you've seen it everywhere, right? Me too. Church too. Um, abuse is rampant. Um, way more widespread than any of us would want want it to be and any of us have been willing to admit or had any idea of in some cases. Um, but the, the policy is intended in part to let people know in our community that if, uh, if something terrible happens and um, an accusation needs to be made, that there, there's, the system is actively not going to protect, protect the powerful people at Artisan. Um, the system is actively going to protect the, the people who have um, been hurt. God forbid that ever happens here. And I think that's incredibly important. Now I will say also, as part of that policy, and one of the people who's helping us draft it is a, a counselor who works with abusers. And so part of the policy um, talks about caring for that population as well. And man, is that a hard, hard thing to think through. And I'm challenged by that idea. Like I would want to, I want to be so protective. I'm like, don't even come near. But I don't see that in Jesus. I just don't see that being Jesus' way of, of doing something. And um, so that's something we're going to, to be working on. And... If anybody's interested in, in I mean, that, that process has been on, ongoing for several months now, but if anybody's interested in, in learning more about that or maybe contributing some thoughts to it, I would be willing to 
to talk with you about it and tell you a little bit more. But I, th our, I think our hope is to get that out by the beginning of the next calendar year. So <clears throat> thank you for that question. Ruby. How does Jesus float up in the air? Oh, wow. How does Jesus float up in the air? <clears throat> so there's a story in the Bible Ruby's talking about. Some of you don't know the Bible as well as Ruby does. So after Jesus was crucified and was buried and resurrected from the dead, on the third day he appeared to his disciples for you know, the next 40 days and he kept saying to them, peace be with you and don't be afraid. Isn't that a beautiful thing for Jesus to say? And then in one moment they were all standing around and it's, the Bible says that Jesus was taken up into the clouds. You do? Wow. You know, there's some beautiful sacred art of Jesus. It's called the ascension because to ascend means to go up. There's some beautiful art of the ascension. People made paintings of Jesus being taken up into the clouds. And my favorite one of them is a version of the ascension painted in probably the Renaissance period of Italy. And then someone photoshopped a trampoline underneath Jesus. <laughs> and he's like... <laughs> It's really wonderful. I don't think Jesus got up in the air from a trampoline, though. I think that it was a miracle that God did. You think Jesus what? You, you think he did it? Yeah. He is God. That's right, Ruby. Very good theology from almost five-year-old Ruby Jane. Thank you. Great question. Now let's do one more question. And I, I, I'm glad that we had a child ask a question. If there are other kids who want to ask a question, that's okay, too. Any age. You had just mentioned in seeking the kingdom of God first, and I think we often forget that. I know that I do personally. And yet, in our culture, there's this need for truth, and, and sometimes we abuse the Bible by using the Bible to gain a truth that we feel is important to tell somebody about. Mm -hmm. How do we reconcile the need to tell truth or find truth or know what truth is with seeking the kingdom of God first? It's like there's, there's a tension there. Hmm. So you're suggesting the, a balance between seeking truth and seeking God's kingdom, but that, there's a, that those things are in tension with each other. Is that correct? Well, Fair to say? Yeah. I see. So. Right. Okay, so um, I hear you going a little bit more in that direction of doctrine and, and finding truth in, <clears throat> you know, the way we should act or the way we should live our lives and that kind of thing. And I do think that we sometimes become preoccupied with, with, um, <clears throat> with behavioral issues, if you'll pardon the expression, or with getting things just right. And that, I think it causes us to take our eye off the ball, if you will, of seeking God's kingdom first. Um, I, I, don't, I would not probably categorize 
this, the quest for truth and doctrinal truth even um, in the same category as uh, seeking sustenance and need, you know, that, uh, basic human needs and so forth. But I don't, I don't think that's quite what you're saying, but I just wanted to clarify that. For me, I think it's an inward focus is, is usually the answer with this kind of question, right? Because as you, as you suggest, we, our tendency is want to use this, this beautiful book, the Bible, um, to cut down other people or to help them understand all the ways that they're failing. And I would rather use it to cut myself down and understand the ways that I'm failing and address those when I need to. Now, is there, there is a time, though, to be somewhat prophetic in the Old Testament sense of that word and to, and to call the powers that be to account. Or even in the context of a trusting relationship with a, a peer to say, listen, you're not living up to the standard that you claim to be committed to. Um, but that's a very um, delicate interaction that I think should be mostly restricted to uh, those types of relationships rather than um, used outwardly, willy-nilly, if you will. So uh, once again, I'm not sure if I gave you the best answer to your question, but uh, we are probably out of time for Stump the Pasture this time. And uh, you can always come back to the 11 if you didn't like the answer I gave you today and ask it again. But uh, it's, I love this time because I, I love hearing what's on your minds and on your hearts. I hope, that, I hope that you enjoy it too. Let me close with this really incredible teaching from Jesus. This is from the uh, gospel passage for the lectionary today from Mark 7, and the verses jump around, so here, I'll just read it. Now, when the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. <laughs> and then there's a parenthetical explanation, which I think most of us probably need, but maybe Mark's original readers needed it as well. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they thoroughly wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. And they do not eat anything from the market unless they wash it. And they, there are also many other traditions that they observe, the washing of cups, pots, and bronze kettles, end parentheses. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not live according to the tradition of the elders, elders but eat with defiled hands? He said to them, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You abandon the commandment of God and hold to human tradition. Then he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I think Jesus gave you a better answer than I did Ed, to, your, to your last question right there. Maybe, um, well, I kind of want to give a sermon on this text, but I'm not going to. Okay, so I'm going to attempt this uh, question as shortly as possible, and it's going to be a lot of rambling. My answer will have that as well. Oh, good. (laughs) So growing up, the concept of heaven was, uh, the kingdom of heaven was a place somewhere else. 
Uh, as I grew older, I heard different understandings. Um, one of being which the kingdom of heaven is, will be established here on earth, and it's up to us to establish it. Mm. How do you reconcile with the idea of how bad things can be and or are and still think that there's one thing you can do to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think you rambled at all. I reserve the right to continue to ramble in my answer, however. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, it comes from Jesus' famous teaching where again and again he said, the kingdom of heaven is way over there. The kingdom of heaven is um, in the future in the sky. You remember when he said that a lot? No. What he actually said was, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <laughs> right, I was tricking you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's here. Like, it, it, I, my opinion, he's saying, I'm bringing the kingdom of heaven here now. Like, this is what the whole thing is. And uh, later on when he's on trial, um, the, the uh, Pontius Pilate says, are you a king? You, you claim to be a king. And and he says, well, my kingdom is not of this world, <laughs> which isn't really an answer, you might have noticed, but it does tell us something about what Jesus thought about earthly kingdoms and um, what the kingdom of God might be. Right? So, and I think this actually came up in the first service as well, uh, and I had a, a follow-up question in between services. So the confusion with kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven can make this harder to understand, right? So Matthew, one of the gospel writers, uses kingdom of heaven because his audience was very Jewish, and the name of God is not... Um, to be spoken in, in that way, right? So kingdom of heaven is what Matthew used, right? Uh, which raises the question, which one did Jesus actually say and is it fair for him to have changed the words and all that kind of stuff gets into very interesting territory. The other gospel writers use kingdom of God um, and so we might think kingdom of heaven and, and our conception of heaven is, you know, um, based on popular culture, right? Just as our conception of hell is based on Dante um, and Milton, um, by the way, if you've never read Dante or Milton, your conception of hell is still based on Dante and Milton. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, okay, so how, how do we, if the kingdom of heaven is something that's now or should be now and it's being established, and if we are co-laborers and co-creators with God in Christ Jesus, um, then how do, we, how do we try to bring that to bear in the world while we look around and go, well, this does not look like what I would recognize as what God wants for the world. That was your actual question, right? So now I need to answer it. <laughs> um, I mean, the, I don't have a great answer except one day at a time, one block at a time, one room of my house at a time, like one, one minute of my life at a time. I think the kingdom of God needs to take root in my own heart before I can worry about it taking root anywhere else. And then, as it begins to take root in my heart and, and produce fruit, hopefully, that, that kind of coupled and tripled and trebled and quadrupled and, and communified with, our, with a local church, I think, can be a powerful agent of change if they have their attention on the right thing. And that's a big if. So, I didn't quite give you a very good answer, but I think you should all get used to that because that's probably how it's going to go this morning. Um, but I, th- I really appreciate the question, and I think the short answer is, like, We've just got to keep working at it. If, I'm going to keep going. If we don't see it in the world, that means we have more work to do. So that, that's the real answer. So let's get busy. Thank you. Next question. Dell has one at the back. Hey, Scott. So 
So I'm noticing that we're using the term kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and I feel like it would be important to spend a little bit of time uh, defining that a little bit better so that we have a better context as to what we're actually talking about. Mm. Would you want to throw in your hat? (laughs) (laughs) Throw your ring in the hat? Throw your hat in the ring? Sure, (laughs) sure. Um, Well, I mean... we can get into the weeds on that pretty heavily because there's different ways of interpreting that phrase, right? I'm trying to give you a concise definition. My definition would be something on the lines of a world that looks like the world that God made originally and wanted the world to be like. So a world... This is why um, eradicating sin is more than just a, a eternity life insurance kind of policy. It's because it changes the way the world works around us. And and moving toward personal holiness and systemic holiness um, helps us make the the world look more like what God's world should look like, and more like what God's kingdom um, would look like if in its perfection. So, <clears throat> I would. I mean, you read scripture; <laughs> it's everywhere. It's, it's all of that, and and. I don't know if I can do it concisely, you know, where, where poverty isn't a problem, where people aren't hungry, where people aren't naked, where, where um, violence is not the answer to everything, where um, sexuality is not a method of exploitation and uh, self-gratification, and where um, government actually does <laughs> function in a way that supports the... Um, the, the godly vision for the world rather than subverting it or or taking our attention away from it and um, it's gigantic <laughs> it's a gigantic concept so I hope that's a little bit helpful but can I give you a, a ten word definition um, maybe by next week but not right now <laughs> I don't know I hope that's helpful other questions we go in here and then we'll come over to you hi hi We uh, read the Apostles' Creed earlier today, which you can read and see that it's uh, uh, a statement of one preposterous thing after another. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard it described that way, but I love it. (laughs) How how do you square uh, away um, the, the, the belief in that with the preposterousness of it all? Hmm. That's a great question. There are lots of miracles hinted at in there. Um, just the existence of God, which, uh, you know, on some days feels preposterous to us more than on others. Um, virgin birth, resurrection, um, communion of the saints, whatever that means. Yeah, but it sounds preposterous, yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's a... Uh, that's a, a very, uh, like, that's an essential question. I was going to say existential, but that has a particular philosophical meaning that I don't intend to go into. But, like, that's the question of everything. Um, the, the very existence of God is, it can't be proved. Anybody who tells you it's proven is trying to sell a book, right? And there have been a lot of them sold over the years. Um, anybody who tells you they can prove the resurrection happened using you know, historical deductive reasoning or whatever, is also trying to sell a book. Just always, always ask, are you selling a book by any chance? <laughs> um, but on the other hand, uh, I would say the opposite is true, that if anybody's 
telling you that they can prove conclusively that these things, you know, aren't didn't happen or aren't real. Like that's that's also. I mean, it's. I understand people might have an argument about where the burden of proof lies, but as far as conclusive proof, um, I don't think it's really to be found on either end of those equations, either side of those equations. So, as I often say, we don't say the Apostles' Creed um, in order that by rote repetition we might force ourselves to believe something which we know to be preposterous, but rather that it's a way of uniting us around the shared belief of the historic Christian church of which we are a part. Even though our history is very short, this weds us to um, centuries and, and millennia even now, a couple of them, um, of Christian belief. And then our roots go even deeper, and, and some of the words of the creed certainly would contain doctrine and teaching that predates Christianity as a religion. So... Um, <clears throat> There is, a, there is a trust that's involved there. And I, I am I'm trying to be careful not to say it in a way that says, that, that's dismissive of people who are skeptical or doubting or um, more, um, what's the word for people who want uh, evidence? I'm trying to think of a... Cynical. No, not cynical. <laughs> it's, not, um, that is, uh, it's like a science-y thing. Like it's... There's stuff that points you to something. Uh, uh, You're all shouting words at me now, and I'm confused. (laughs) I'll just say it this way. I'm not trying to be dismissive of people who who have trouble believing something without very, very strong evidence of it happening. Because I think the whole, like, well, just have faith. You'll be fine. You just have to trust. And if you don't have trust, then I guess you're not part of the club. I don't like that definition of faith, as you know, if you've been around for any length of time, and you, you have been around for a while. So, um, But I, don't, I also don't want to gloss over those things. So you, it requires a level of trust, I guess, is, is part of the answer. It's not a very satisfying answer, but I think you should all get used to that. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, Keith, every time we do Stump the Pastor, there's one question that I answer in this way, and I go all over the place, and I don't give a good answer, and then, like, I'll wake up from my nap in two hours and go, oh, I wish I had said whatever. So I'll email you on Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for a great question, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. I usually borrow Brian McLaren's phrase and say, it's it's not question and answer, it's question and response. (laughs) Who's got the next question? Oh, yeah, that's right. Sarah had one over here. So mine's a little bit more history-ish and less... Maybe, well, maybe it's still just as ambiguous. So Psalms, mm-hmm. uh, as a musician and as a pastor, like, I, Psalms has always kind of stumped me because Psalms songs, I want to know, like, were they all written by David? Is it a collection like other books of the Bible are? And with that, like, he goes from, like, wishing God's holy fire on his enemies to being like, oh God, save me, like just kind of back and forth through the whole thing. And uh, that view of God, we don't really talk about a lot. We talk a lot about New Testament God, but we don't talk about fury God a lot. And so I'm wondering, like, why is all that included? (laughs) Uh, And and what does it mean for us? Yeah, great question. I love that question. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I don't know if you noticed that uh, musicians can be somewhat moody and temperamental people. <laughs> yeah. 
dare you? Um, <laughs> uh, yes, so first question. David did not write them all. There's some that are identified as Psalms of David, some that are identified as like the sons of Korah, some that are identified not really, they're not attributed to anybody at all. And of course, it's impossible to know with certainty. Uh, There are certain Psalms that you can connect to events in David's life. Is it Psalm 52? Uh, The Created Me a Clean Heart is a very confessional Psalm, which we think was written after the David and Bathsheba episode. Um, And uh, we should include Uriah in that that description as well. I think... uh, was it Pete that taught on that a little bit while I was on vacation? But, um, so you also refer to a category of psalms which are called imprecatory psalms. Those are the ones that, that, that sing out to God, O oh Lord, please smite my enemies, and, and actually in much more disturbing graphic detail than that very often. That's, that's right. That's the more children are in the sanctuary than usual version. That's correct, yes. Um, and you think, how can the same person have written these things? And the very important question, why did we include these in there, right? Um, <clears throat> well, it, it somewhat goes to what you want out of Scripture, what you expect Scripture to be. And a lot of us were raised, myself included, in a, in a church culture. Now, I'm not trying to blame my parents or anybody in particular for this, but in a, a church culture that, that sort of loves the Bible so much that they make a little bit of an idol out of it, right? Uh, <laughs> a little bit. And that they interpret it in a way that's, that's, that sterilizes it. And that says that every word in it must be interpreted the same way as every other word. Right? And you know from hearing me talk over the years that that's not, what I, that's not the way I love the Bible. I love the Bible in a different way that allows for the fact that this was written. It's not a book, it's a library and is written over the course of centuries by different people in different places at different times in the history of God's action in the world. And... The psalms are songs. They are songs used for worship, yes, but they're also songs. And, you know, I've written some songs over the years, and I sure don't want anybody to think that, that the, the um, affect or the emotion or the attitude that's in every song I ever wrote is, is what I feel all the time, or that it's even necessarily was 100% true for me then. So I, that's like some people go, what are you talking about? It's the Bible. You can't talk about the Bible that way. Well, it's, that's the category of literature that we're talking about. So... Let's take very quickly the most disturbing sentence in the whole Bible, which um, is from Psalm, I think it's 137. And I won't get descriptive, overly descriptive, but it describes um, uh, uh, the Israelites longing to get back at their enemies by harming their enemies' children in a very specific and disturbing way. And that is incredibly troubling to me, and I think, how could that be sacred scripture? How could that be inspired? How am I supposed to model my life after that? But the other part, and you can't do justice in 10 seconds very well, but I'll do my best. Like, that, that psalm also talks about how they had been the victims of incredibly disturbing violence at the hands of the Babylonians. And so that is not to excuse, certainly, because I think Jesus tells us otherwise, the idea that if I receive violence in my own person or in my own community that I should express it out toward others. But what it does, in my opinion, is affirm the human tendency to want to respond that way and to put that into a psalm, a song to God, to me, um, deepens the humanity uh, of whoever wrote it. (laughs) It gives voice to, like, 
their worst desires. And sometimes a song gives voice to something in that way and prevents it from happening. I think that's how art works sometimes for us, um, just the way we're made as human beings. So, And this maybe isn't true for everybody, but I think it's true for me. I've never thought anything that gruesome and grotesque. And so it's something of an encouragement to me when I do think things that are gruesome and grotesque, that at least that's not that bad. I'm, I'm like being a little silly, but that's actually part of it too. I think it's like... Um, if God's people can be that off the mark, then, I, then maybe I'm okay. Does that make sense? That's a great question. Thank you. Bridget has a question at the back. So, um, you know, you heard the phrase, uh, God keeps his promises. And we're talking about how in the Bible, like some of the stuff we have to read as like, principles more than promises. So what are actually the promises that God has made that we can like trust in? Do you know what I mean? I do. Um, you're going to ask me to give an exhaustive list on the well, fly. Well, <laughs> you don't have to. I just... <laughs> yeah. Like a top, like, three right, so or five. I think you're referring to what I said a week or two ago when I was teaching from the Proverbs and explaining that the Proverbs say things that sound like a guarantee, but they're not intended to be promises. They're Proverbs. They're wisdom sayings, right? So that's our first clue, I think. Um, look at the genre of literature that we're reading. And does this seem like it's a a grand theological statement? Does it seem like it's um, a piece of wisdom literature? Does it seem like it's a song? Because <laughs> right? I think a lot of times we try to derive very precise theology from the book of Psalms, and I think that's a bad idea because they're songs. And that doesn't mean they're less inspired <laughs> or less valuable. It just means we have to read them differently. So the first task is not an easy one, but I think the first task is to find to think, about, think critically about what part of the Bible are you in right now. Think about who's speaking, right? So I could take, and I have heard this happen, I could go to the book of Job, right, where Job is this, this big, probably big play, actually, where Job is tested, right? There's a whole prologue with the devil and things, but, and he has this terrible experience, and yet he continues. He persists in trusting God. And all his friends say, you must have done something wrong, or this wouldn't be happening to you. I could take that out, and as I say, I've had people do this. You could take that verse out of the Bible and say, well, if you're going through something terrible, just keep looking for the sin in your life. That's what happened. That's how it works. And you forget the part that Job's friends are idiots. Like, they're wrong. <laughs> Jesus loves them very much. <laughs> don't you? Kids, don't call people that word. But they're wrong, and they're condemned <laughs> as wrong in the text, right? So we have to be careful who's... Who's speaking in this, in this text? Um, just because the author of Psalm 137 wanted to do that with, it doesn't mean that it's okay, right? So, <laughs> promises. I do like, uh, I, I like the big, wide generalizations, like the, and then you can draw the details out from those. So I would also look for things that seem like this is, uh, this is saying something that it's just clear this is, this is a true for all time category kind of thing. I'm not giving you any specific examples, but if I were to give specific examples, um, it would be that we are God's beloved children. That's the kind of thing that, like, you can apply that to everything. And you can't, you can't take that one out of context. <laughs> Some people might accuse you of, of applying it too liberally, and I don't think you can. Um, 
that, that God, it's not God's will that anyone be lost. God desires that all be saved. These, these kind of things. You should hear the difference in tone between that and like over here in this one church, the author says, I don't, I don't really think the women should talk. You know, I don't want to go. <laughs> it's not really fair to dump that particular thing on you, but the short version is my take is that's a specific instruction for specific women in a specific church. And we may not even like that, but it's a lot different from saying no woman should ever speak in church because that same author commends women who speak in church in another one of his books. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but do you hear the difference between, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's not God's will that any should be lost? That uses words like any or whatever. And over here, I don't know. I hope that's somewhat helpful. I'll probably email you on Tuesday also. <laughs> I think we have time for one or two more, depending on how hard they are. <laughs> um, we have Doug here, and then... I, I can't see you. Oh, hi, Bethany, I'm sorry. I, the lights are just wrong. Go ahead, Doug. So, my son just threw a pencil at me first. Oh, that is a son thing to do. So, um, so... In, in looking at the lectionary text this week, I accidentally looked at James 2 instead of James 1. Okay. And so, but that brought me to this question, which I've wrestled with my own, in my own discerning, is how do, you rec- how do you reconcile Paul's take on justification mm. versus James' take on fa- the, the, the faith issue of justification yep. between the two? Uh you're referring to the faith without works is dead stuff in James 2? We're actually going to get there. Um, I was just sketching out the upcoming series, um, which is kicking off our theme for the year. It's called Beloved Community. And it will be lectionary-based, but it'll be a little bit more topical and thematic. And we're going to get into James a little bit more. But I'm probably not going to go down that road, so I'll try to answer it now. Um, I think there's a sense in which they're, they're describing two sides of one coin. And I think the whole debate over whether salvation comes through works or faith, um, it arose from a, from a historical occurrence, right? The Protestant Reformation. So there was a, the Protestants desired to... Um, push back against what they saw, I think probably correctly, as errant Catholic doctrine about what, what works do for us. <laughs> and so they, they um, emphasized faith, and specifically when it came to the question of justification, which is a fancy theological word for how your soul is saved, right? How you're cleansed from your sin, or, you know, there's lots of different words we could use. And... I think that was an important corrective, but as is so often the case with corrective measures, the, the pendulum may have swung too far in the other, and then we have the opposite problem because we think that works don't matter at all. <laughs> but, you know, you refer to a scripture that tells us that works do matter, and that actually, whatever you call faith, if you don't have some works going along with it, it's, it's dead. <laughs> um, not not, not going to be good enough to save your soul or justify you or atone for your sins or whatever, whatever you might want it to do. And so the best way for me to make sense of this is to think about my definition of faith and my definition of works and try to remove that from the historical, um, the heat of the historical dis- dispute. 
So um, for me, f- faith is more than just a, an assent to a set of doctrines. So if you can confess the Heidelberg <laughs> Catechism or whatever it might be for whichever denomination you're part of, that's like, faith means you believe all these things. And we might let you slip on one or two, but not these ones. And if you go up to three or four, then you're, you're out. And you don't have faith, so you're not saved. That's, I, I, you can't square that with James. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Right? And on the other hand, I don't say that works are like, well, you, the, the better works you do, the, the fancier your Maserati is in, in heaven. <laughs> you know? I don't, it's so... I probably have to leave it there, but a, a redefining of faith as trust in Jesus and a redefining of works as the natural outpouring of the Spirit's presence in my life helps me to reconcile those things a little bit better. Does that make sense at all? Is that helpful? Okay. All right. I think we had Bethany over there. My question is, uh, I haven't gotten a good answer in the past, so be, be warned. <laughs> you might want to prepare yourself for that to continue. I can just tell. Yeah. Um, so I I went to this class at one point um, for missions work, and, and the very first class was talking about um, how God created the earth uh, and and people for missions. This is just backstory, uh-huh. and. Um, how they opened the class was what happened before Genesis, like what happened that made God want to create earth. And how they were describing it painted God in a very um, egotistical and narcissistic way. And I was not about it. (laughs) (laughs) So I was wondering, uh, what is your understanding about what happened before Genesis? Oh, wow. Great question. So I'm assuming, Bethany, that, that the, the take on that was that God, God needed to make the world and the people in it because God wanted people to love him, right? Like God needed someone to love him and like, so made people so that we could be the ones who would show God love. Is that... Okay. I've heard that one before. and I'm, I'm with you. I'm, what did you say? I'm not about it. <laughs> um, I do think that, that God desires our love and wants to be in community with us. Um, but, you know, to use a, a kind of an unfair analogy, but maybe it's somewhat helpful, you know, Tracy and I didn't decide to have children just so that somebody would love us more. They do, and we're grateful for that, and, and that's one of the deepest joys in our life. But that's not why we did it. So it, it's, it's always somewhat risky business when you start to connect... Uh, parenthood with creation of the human race, but there are some parallels that might be helpful. <clears throat> oh boy, my take on what happened before Genesis. Well, the earth was formless and void. I know that much. <laughs> wow. I, wow, what a great question. Somebody out there is like, I have the answer. I wish I could just have the microphone right now. Um, (laughs) Yes, I see that hand. I think that there is part of God's nature, right, that is creative, creational. 
I actually think that when we are made in the image of God that we inherit some of that as well. It's part of the whole artisan ethos that we are created to be creators, that we were made by a maker so that we can make things and that we, um, we live in a beautiful world that God made beautiful so that we can make beauty around us as well, all of these things. So when it, if, if by before Genesis you're going to what's God's motivation for creation, I think part of it is just that's, that's who God is. That's how we know God. I believe in God the Father, maker or creator of heaven and earth. It's in the first few words of the creed. And I do think it's probably fair to attribute a, a desire for fellowship with God's creation, for God's desire for fellowship with his creation um, as part of the motivation for it. But I, I have to admit, I haven't really given a ton of thought to that beyond just, you know, not being about that other thing. <laughs> and uh, that's probably a lesson that I could stand to learn a lot, which is, I, I actually have learned it many times, and I'm continuing to learn it over and over again, which is, um, I try to do this in church life as well. Let's define ourselves by who we are, not by who we aren't. <laughs> and it's easy for me to say, I'm not really about that other thing. But if I don't have something to replace it with, that's problematic. So uh, it might take me longer than to Tuesday to, <laughs> to respond to that question. Wow. This would be a, that would be a fun, maybe we'll, we'll make that the subject of a, a Sunday spiritual formation study or something sometime. I'm stumped. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you are our big winner today. Um, yes, you win the, uh, the, the gift card. Anyway, I love these times, by the way, even when I don't have the answer, kind of especially when I don't have the answers. I hope that that doesn't become incredibly frustrating to you, but... Uh, I love to hear what's on your mind, and thank you for your sharing of great questions. And you might want to listen to the podcast because the first service had some great questions too, and uh, it might be fun to hear some of those. The the themes of salvation came up a lot in the first service, so I I didn't do justice in any of my answers, as Mike and Mel or anybody else could tell you. But uh, Let's conclude now, um, and I want to invite you to come and take communion in a minute. Now, we, we have the room laid out in a different way. Some of you have noticed that already. We're trying something different while we have a little bit lighter attendance, mainly, you know, to, to show you the inside baseball because it, it's kind of nice to have aisles on the outside. So feedback welcome on the seating arrangement. But with no middle aisle, you might not know how to take communion. So what I would ask you to do is on your way up, come to these two middle aisles and then come to the communion table. And then when you're done, go all the way out to the wall and down the outside aisles. And that way the flow will be kind of... Um, sensible. So um, Artisan's communion table is an open table offered to all who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place, regardless of your religious affiliation uh, or church membership, lack thereof. The body and blood of the Savior on offer on the table of the Lord is for all who would come to it and uh, receive it with humility, seeking his mercies. Uh, if you don't wish to take communion, that's fine. Nobody looks at you sideways, I hope, in that case. You're welcome to, to sit and think or pray or meditate. And there's a member of the prayer team uh, sitting at the back of the room during communion, and if you'd like to receive personal prayer during this time, you can do that as well. So let's continue to sing and worship God in that way as we come to the table, as we pray. And uh, if you have children in the other room, you can go and get them and have them be part of this as well. Um, our table is open. I invite you to come. 
For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.